Shalom again from Jerusalem to the ICEJ webinar. Welcome to everybody wherever you are joining us. Might be morning, afternoon or evening. Um, it's so good to see you all. We have today a full program. Uh, the webinar today was uh, planned to focus on the Negev, but uh, today is the best example of uh, the nature of living in Israel. Some of our staff, they come to us and they say, well, we need in regard to this and that, we need to make a long-term plan about what are we going, going to do today in one year. And I said, guys, we are living in Israel. You can't plan really what's happening in one year from now because things are changing quickly here in the Middle East. And um, when we were planning this webinar, we had still a very stable government in Israel. And uh, the next morning we woke up and one of the Knesset members of the, the, uh, the coalition uh, defective and defected the, the coalition, um, the governing coalition. And we are today with a very unstable situation. Uh, we will ask uh, in a minute the input of David also what he takes about that. Um, one of the reasons we did this webinar today also was there was a historic summit in the Negev desert. I was driving through the Negev just a few days ago past the fabulous hotel in Stebokel where Ben-Gurion had a very modest hut. And in that place, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, in a historic meeting, leaders from Bahrain, from the United Arab Emirates, from Morocco and Egypt arrived for a historic summit. And uh, this underlined the Abrahamic process or Abrahamic accords that are taking place, that they are not just uh, worth the paper they are signed on, but that this is really a very dynamic uh, living partnership that is developing right now in the Middle East between the neighboring countries of Israel, the Arab nations and Israel. We will speak about that a little bit. And then David and myself, uh, we have been, we had the privilege uh, on another tour in the Negev to be there. Uh, I think it was two months ago. And we were joined by a very impressive, uh, very knowledgeable gentleman called Elisha Misrahi. And today we are really blessed to have uh, Elisha with us. He had become a, a dear friend of the ICJ. He's one of the uh, senior spokesmen of the uh, Jewish National Funds, KKL, also um, uh, known as that, Karin Kayemetli Israel. And uh, they made the miraculous work over the last 100 years that whenever you have a desert in a nation, the desert is growing. Um, there is one country in the world where the desert is retreating, and that's the nation of Israel. And that's due to the guys around uh, Elisha Misrahi. Over the last 100 years, they have been planting more than 300 million trees all across Israel. And Israel today is a, a land where you really can see the desert blossoming. And we witnessed that. We heard some amazing reports, really some miracles. So today, this is going to be a very fascinating uh, a webinar, a very rich one. And David, let's start first about this uh, new uh, coalition situation that we have in the Knesset. Now, uh, we all were surprised, I believe, that this current government actually survived the whole year because it's such a diverse uh, group of people where you have people that are uh, affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood and far-left uh, people with merits, all the way to uh, right-wing, you can say, nationalist parties. And, um, and another miracle of that coalition is, is that the party with which has the, almost the least or one of the lowest uh, members in the Knesset actually is providing the, the, the Prime Minister of Israel. And that's quite a very unique situation that we had, David. Yes, Jürgen. Uh, look, it is broad from uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's party on, on the right, national religious, all the way over to some of the Arab parties and merits, which is very liberal and uh, held together by a desire to keep uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, out of power. Uh, but only 61 seats in the Knesset, a one-seat majority. And there was always the chance that someone along that whole spectrum of political parties, just one person could, uh, you know, really demand something, extract all sorts of uh, concessions and goodies to, in order to keep the government in place. 
there was already, it was at 62 seats at one point, but one of the Yamina, Bennett's own party on the right, Yamina means right, uh, that left uh, early on, and now it's a second member, uh, Knesset member Edith um, Silman has left, and it's quite interesting. She's hanging her hat saying, I can't take it any longer because the uh, Minister of Health, uh, Horowitz, on the left, he's with Merits, the chairman of Merits, he is going to abide by a Supreme Court ruling that if you are a patient in an Israeli hospital, and you want someone to bring you a, a sandwich with leaven in it, with hummets in it, over Passover, you can do that. It's a very sort of technical little legal issue that in most countries say, what is this? But in Israel, it, these things are important to maintain the Jewish character and culture of this country. And she says, I, um, I'm going to leave the government over this. But there's reports that she had already worked out a deal with Likud, to be number 10 on their list in the next election. If this was going to trigger election, she would be appointed health minister. There's now talk of another member of Yamina. Bennett himself is having a rebellion within his own party that they, you know, maybe it's enough time of Bibi in the political wilderness. And we still don't know where it'll go, but it's thrown everything into chaos here. It's now a 60-60 dead tie. If you were to bring up a vote of confidence in the government, it would be a dead tie. And, and so Israel's kind of hamstrung until something breaks in this one way or the other. You have to turn, turn yourself. Yeah. You're good. Yeah, I think it's not enough to really break the government, but it's a, a major crack in this current coalition. And, uh, you, you know, you said this sentence, uh, she had enough. I think this was not just regarding the kosher uh, issue, but there are yes. uh, media reports today that uh, she, uh, some of the journalists, they say this with the, the high pressure in the Knesset where you get pressure from so many sides, maybe came also as a surprise for her. She was relative new in the Knesset. And uh, so she she had to face with the the, the 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 tough reality to be a politician in Israel. You know, it's uh, Elisha. I'm not sure if you heard that joke, but uh, there was the discussion between uh, President Trump in America and Benjamin Netanyahu back then, who were arguing who is uh, um, having this the most difficult nation to govern. And, and Donald Trump said, "Of course, that's us. We have a million, uh, 350 million size." nation and you have just this tall tiny nation that you have to govern netanyahu replied he says you might be right you have a greater population but i have to govern a nation with seven million prime ministers and uh, and i think that's one of the challenges in israel that it's a very vocal situation and to be a member of knesset i don't envy those guys it's a very tough job and they are facing a lot of pressure and i think that's what we also just saw that uh, um, this is unfolding. We, we don't want to talk too much more about it, but I think this is a call for all of our listeners from around the world. I do see we have today uh, again an amazing panel here from uh, people joining us. I see somebody from Argentina, the United States, New York, uh, I see Spain, Mexico, Switzerland. So welcome everybody on this uh, uh, special uh, webinar today. And let's move to the next subject of our webinar and uh, let's move south in Israel to the Negev. And uh, we have been speaking on this platform quite a number of times about the Abrahamic Accords and the uh, new wind that is blowing in the Middle East. And it's a, we have really to say, we have to say that it's a, a massive shakeup in the region. None of us would have believed 10 years ago that one day um, Arab heads of state would come to Israel, visit the country, that there would be embassies of those countries in Israel, there would be frequent travel. I myself was flying to Dubai uh, just a few months ago and I was surprised that I could choose on that particular day from four different direct lines between Tel Aviv and, and uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates. So there's a very dynamic, a lively uh, relationship between those countries. 
And then just a few weeks ago, the historic, it was actually around the 27th of March, a historic summit summit took place in the Negev, in Steyboker, the place where David Ben-Gurion is buried, where he spent the last years of his life. Um, there the leaders of Bahrain, or the foreign ministers of Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco and Egypt, came for the first time together on Israeli soil and discussed uh, matters relating to the region. Of course, Iran was very high on the agenda because they all uh, join Israel in recognizing this as a, a major threat for the region. They discussed, of course, the developing situation with Ukraine and, and Russia, because Russia is actually located right in the northern border of Israel in Syria. They spoke about the escalating energy prices and, of course, the issue of the Palestinians was part of those discussions. And David, I think this was uh, an absolutely historic event. And, and you made a comment about, you know, that they decided to move it to the to the Knesset, which was from some of the Arabs, they consider a disputed territory. Mm -hmm. This was quite a powerful statement from those Arab leaders to come specially to that place. Yeah, I think part of the significance of this Negev summit, it was only like 10, 11 days ago, um, and with all the Ukraine war, a lot of people might not have really uh, pay, been paying much attention to it, but it was historic. And part of it was the, the place where they held it in Sedeboker, which is in the far south of the Negev, very dry desert area. But this is where uh, David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding uh, prime minister, and this legendary Zionist figure where he retired late in life in order to sort of affirm his vision that Israel's future lay in developing the Negev. I think part of it was inspired by the Bible, Isaiah 35, the desert shall blossom by a rose. And for these leaders to come where to this place where Ben-Gurion is buried uh, and, and you put it in, in, uh, in perspective of where the Arab world was when he was ruling and when he retired there, his dream of developing the desert as a way of bringing uh, peaceful, normal relations with fellow Arab neighbors, it, it was really coming true at this time. And it also was a big statement for these Arab foreign ministers to come to a place that um, maybe no, most people don't know, but the whole Negev, which is about half of Israel's overall area, land area, it is about half Arab, half Jewish in population. A lot of the Arabs are Bedouins. They're ending centuries of nomadic life, settling down into towns. And there's a real, uh, it's almost a frontier atmosphere out there where Israeli authorities and some of these, especially younger Bedouins, as their, their lifestyles change, that patriarchal sort of system they have, the culture is breaking down and some of the young folks are just doing what they want and it's trying to, to there's, a, there's a wrestling, a battling going on over the Negev. I think um, Elisha Mizrahi, our guest today, really uh, can speak to this because he's got a long experience in the Negev but it was also significant for the participants. You know, Israel's been meeting with Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, who were original signers of the Abraham Accords. Morocco joined later. Morocco is important because within the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, they hold the, the Jerusalem portfolio, Guardian of Jerusalem. And with all the intense, the sensitivities, the explosiveness of the Jerusalem issue, it's really important that Israel develop these relations with Morocco. It's important they're there. And Egypt, even though they've had this peace treaty for 40 some years now with, with Israel, uh, it was always a cold peace. And in recent months, the al-Sisi government has it warmly embraced the Abraham Accords. I think we can all remember al-Sisi going. He was hosting a, uh, an in, a regional energy conference a, a few months ago. And when he came in, sat down, everyone's applauding. He sits down, takes off his mask, and then he deliberate, gets back up and goes and greets Israel's energy minister who was in attendance. She's in a wheelchair, uh, Karine El Hara, 
and he was very gracious and, and, and warm towards her as a special gesture to Israel's presence there. And it just showed he's embracing the Abraham Accords. It was also important to note who wasn't there. Uh, the Palestinians and Jordan were not there. They still have troubles with normalization for different reasons. The Saudis weren't there, but there is there are openings there. And, and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia just called uh, Israel a potential ally. They're allowing Israeli planes to fly over their airspace. Netanyahu reportedly met with Crown uh, Prince uh, uh, MBS, as we call him, Ben Salman, uh, about two years ago. So there's openings, and we know there's quiet work between them to try and deal, especially with the Iranian threat. And I think that was the real purpose. Uh, one of the purposes, from Israel's perspective, was to try and uh, you know not only just talk openly about how to develop the region together. The future of the region, that, that is significant to do that down there in the Negev at Sedeboker, where Ben Gurion is buried, but um, uh, also to, to try and deal uh, you know, with the US uh, seemingly in retreat, pull out of Afghanistan, or pulled out some of this re in some ways out of this region. Important for all these local powers to get together and say, how are we going to deal with the Iranian threat? Not just nuclear, but drones, rockets, everything. Yeah, and maybe to, to uh, you know, to sidelines also to underline how significant really this change, change is, is that uh, you had in the region basically two uh, big uh, alliances. One was, one was the, uh, the Arab League that uh, comprised of all the Arab nation, but then there was also the association of Islamic countries, which was even much, much broader. And there was usually a very strong unity against Israel, no matter when they had big discussions about many subjects, but when it came to Israel, they were all united. And uh, one of the the characteristics what uh, came out of this meeting is that Israel now together with those Arab countries, Blinken uh, uh, from the United States joined later on that evening, and he got quite pressure from both Israel and the Arab nations to put more pressure on Iran and to not sign the nuclear agreement with them. So that's a complete new dynamic that we see in the Israel, in the Middle East, where you see Israel lining up and uh, um, building an alliance with Arab Islamic countries against another Islamic country. So that's quite a, a revolution, a shakeup in the Middle East. You mentioned uh, Egypt joining in. Uh, they actually were, I just found out, invited the last. And here you see again, you know, in the past, you saw a, a jockeying of the nations, of the Arab nations. In They wanted to outdo each other again in their, in their enmity against Israel. Uh, now Egypt complained, why are we not invited? We also want to be part of this new dynamic in the Middle East. And it's really a whole new atmosphere here. And I want to, our listeners to understand from around the world, the Middle East is changing and it's highly encouraging for us to see that. But let's talk more about um, the beauty of the land of Israel. And you see here behind our, our special guest today, Elisha Misrahi, a beautiful image from the Negev desert, how we experienced it just a few weeks ago when we were with Elisha in the desert and you actually didn't think you are in a desert area, but you it looked like you are in a greenhouse. The whole ground was covered with those red poppy flowers. And a lot of what we see today in Israel in regard to its agriculture, in regard to the breakthroughs that Israel is bringing also to other nations, is due to one organization in Israel. It's actually the oldest organization in Israel, and this is Keren Kayemet Le Israel, or the Jewish National Fund. And Elisha, it's such a great honor for us to have you with us and to be one of those, to have one of those members with us who made this miracle of greening the desert possible. So um, tell us what is JNF all about and what are the current projects that you all are undertaking? So, hey friends, hello. And yes, JNF, it was established 120 years ago. Uh, we are talking about, about an organization that is here before Israel was established, a jubilee before, and with the help of a lot of communities, 
by a very simple box, the blue, our blue, blue box, we were able to do all these deeds indeed. And what is Kakal? What is the Jewish National Fund, Keren Kayemet Israel, that was founded in 1904? Uh, it's what we called the practical Zionism, meaning taking the values, taking the, the vision of establishing an, a country for the Jewish nation to a practical approach. First of all, by purchasing land, buying the land that will, need, will be needed in the future, as they call it, for the farmers, for the people that will come and build their communities in the land of Israel. And they did it. And what do you do on those areas? You plant trees that will serve the farmers for you know, future, future generation. Which, which trees can be planted? Olive trees. And not so far from my home in one of the ancient colonies that was established in, in 8083. I live in Maskered Batya and I'm, and I'm sending my wishes to all of you from here, from my house in Maskered Batya one of the seven first colonies in the country, and not so far from my house. The first forest was planted in 1907, and olive groves that in a while were changing their, their native from farm trees to pine woods. And yes, we were able, our organization through these 120 years, we, we were able to plant more than a million dunams of afforestation project in a desert land. The precipitation overall in the country is not so high. We are talking about a Mediterranean, a sub-Mediterranean area on the desert edge. And when you go down to areas even southern to the Negev area, you go down very, very sharply in precipitation, meaning you, you, you barely see any rain. And when it comes, it comes in short timetables. Most of them will create floods in the rivers, the water are going out of the system. And yes, it was very unfertile land. Miraculously, we were able to change this. This draw behind my back was my daily office for the last 25 years, as I was responsible on behalf of Keren Kayemetli Israel as a forest manager on the area adjacent to Gaza Strip. All the area, the northwestern Negev, uh, I was privileged to be the, the guy that was in charge. They took me as a very young person from the academy, from. Ben-Gurion University, and we were planting trees in dozens of dozens, million, I might say, in my lifetime as a forester and before, and using very simple old methods that were known from ancient times of our forefathers and from the Nabataeans uh, communities in the Negev, we learned again how you can survive as a farmer. And yes, you can plant trees in desert areas. We can collect the runoff from the slope to a kind of structure that we are preparing in the, in the areas where we are activating and catch as much as water as we can and let them seep to the ground in situ. And then you can grow a trees. How many trees? Well, friends, practically the biggest forest that was planted in Israel, and this is the biggest man-made forest in the Middle East, sits on the edge of the desert. The name of the place is Yatir Forest. They start planting it in 1963, and they plant more than 50,000 dunams which is a huge chunk of land. Practically, you can look at it from a, a very simple uh, a, a Google Earth uh, aerial photography from the satellite all of us 
are doing it in and now and then, and you see the huge, the huge spot of your tear forest from the satellite. Elisha, when we were with you and uh, uh, we visited the Atil Forest and some other places, one of the things that really intrigued me, you were telling those early Zionists that came to Israel, many of the first foresters, they actually came from Germany, from the Black Forest, and they yeah. did what they were doing in Germany. But over this last couple of decades, there was really a paradigm shift taking place in Israel. And you are now not blending like Europeans are doing. You found a whole new way. In a way, you're going back to the roots of the Bible, right? Exactly. And we are, we are learning again how to enjoy this old species. As a fact, archaeologists knew that long ago, because in excavations in old cities in the Negev, like Shifta and of that, they found seeds of species that we know them from Mediterranean areas in the country in our days. How come they can be found in, in far back into the desert? Because they were there. They knew how to grow them. They knew how to collect the water and grow them. Yatir forest, you can still see old wineries, old places where they produce olive oil. So no wonder you read in the chapters that there was an, a notion, there was a meaning of the forest Negev. David Ben-Gurion knew that. When he is coming with his vision that the nation of Israel will be tested in the Negev, and that we will need to do what the prophets were proclaiming, you know, to flourish again the desert. He, he didn't just visionize it. He were asking the leaders of Kakal back then, the people that you were mentioning, some of them came from Schwarzwald with a, with a very high experience of how you do a European forest, but what do you do in a desert? And they had to learn by, by, you know, by trial and effort, you fail a bit, you learn a bit. And yes, it took a while when, when my generation came about 26, 28 years ago from the academy, we already had some good, let's say, knowledge of what should be done. And yes, we, we shift. We did some changes. I was very privileged to work with very professional teams in Kakal, and all the methods of what we call rain harvesting was there in front of us, and we did a huge change in the way they they actually uh, designed and plan and plant eventually uh, the the forest in the desert area, and yes, also in northern areas in in the country. One of the visions is to bring back these sceneries of old, antique uh, farming that we are familiar from the, from the chapters in the Bible. The old terraces, the beautiful fountains that are flowing mm -hmm. in Judea Hills. These sceneries will come back as we're going to plant again sycamore trees and, and fig trees and palm trees and herald trees and almonds and pomegranates. They are all here. They are native. This is their homeland. And yes, pine will be maybe on the ridges of the mountains, but in the valleys, on the slopes, in the terrace, many, many, many local trees will grow as oak and, and pistachia. And we have a lot, a lot, a lot of advantage. We sit between three continents, mm. Asia, Africa, and Europe. The amount of species of the ecological system in this country is tremendous. And we are now taking the, you know, taking the, the hints from the nature of which species you should plant where. But yes, all of them are here and they are practically part of our doing in this decade. So Elisha, before David, uh, uh, he was with us on that trip. I, I want him to also to um, uh, ask you some of his questions. But one thing that really intrigued me when we were with you um, visiting the Atil Forest, number one, you said 
those forests that we are plant, planting in the Negev, uh, they are actually changing the microclimate in those areas. That that means that they they can change the way the way how rain is falling. I want you maybe to speak a little bit about that. And then the next day, when uh, after we left uh, the Negev, I believe it was one or two days later, I saw the headlines in Israel that John Kerry, the former uh, Secretary of State and uh, current environment environment minister in the United States, he says. Israel has the solution for global warming. And I know you spoke about that to us. Can you make a few comments about that? First of all, what is the importance of, of Yatir Forest and why there? Uh, together with the Weizmann Institute researcher, a very honorable professor, his name is Dan Yakir, they, they built an experimental station that is already op operative for about 22 years. And this station is part of 38 stations globally. All of them are north to Israel. So Yatir Forest Experimental Station is the southern spot on the northern hemisphere. It's on the desert edge, so it gives us the ability to see and to, to uh, try to understand what is the influence of global warming on a kind of an ecological system like that. And every few minutes, they are transmitting from the forest area gazillions of parameters that are being uh, measured uh, as we were told from uh, the researchers, they have more than 2,000, 2, not, not less than that, sensors in the ground, in this, in up above the, uh, the forest head and inside the canopy. And they are measuring daily and hourly uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of numbers, basically. And they are analyzing for many, many years the data. One of the, let's say, one of the first things that we were, you know, a, a bit shocked because we learned forestation like most of us forester globally uh, from the books. And this knowledge is not written in the books. It's something that is unique to Yatir Forest and is changing the way we understand the ability of ecological system to adapt to changes. I will give some examples and I will be very cautious because we are still learning. We are still monitoring. But some of the record is, is already a kind of effect. About eight years ago, we experienced in, the, in Israel and in the southern area a consecutive drought of between five in certain places to even seven in Yatir forest area meaning that we got in seven years less than 50% of, of the early precipitation, the expected early precipitation. How come the trees survive? Yes, we lost a bit. Some of the weak trees that were weak because they had also diseases or so forth, and their genetic origin was a bit less uh, uh, tough but the majority of the forest sustained. How come? How they did it? And from the knowledge that the researchers in Weizmann Institute gave us, we saw that there is a shift in the way that the trees are functioning. Most of the trees in Mediterranean areas and also in Yatir forest, as we know it for years, were transpirating doing photosynthesis in the springtime, in early springtime, and in late autumn. Meaning that in summertime, they cease. They close the bars, they need to survive the summer, but they never stop doing photosynthesis in the hot conditions of Israel. What happened then? They shift the mechanisms to wintertime opening the stomata and transpirating while most trees are in dormancy, yet the pine woods in Yatir forest did photosynthesis in winter months and closed, went to a kind of a dormancy 
in summertime. That was one very interesting idea of how trees can adapt. And another, another fact was that the forest as a whole is fixing the same amount of carbon dioxide as a European forest. When you look on the water use efficiency of those trees, accordingly, how much water molecules a tree might need to, to waste in order to take a molecule of a carbon and fix it to carbohydrate. And what they discover, it's the same efficiency. The trees are not big, you've seen them, but they do a fabulous work because their water use efficiency is one of the highest that are known in the biological systems. Meaning that if we are planting forests in desert areas, in sub areas on the edges of the fertile areas, not just in Israel, in, in all of the, this kind of, of a line, both sides from the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere with the forest, we can change the way that our globus is treating the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is coming higher and higher and higher. And this is why we are experiencing the global warming. As much as the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere is going higher, as much as the globus is going, is going and heating. So yes, what we are recommending, and of course, we're still cautious about, about how it should be done. There are some equilibriums in nature that we have to consider, and they will still go ahead and monitor it. We must plant as much as trees as, as we can. Yes, not just in Europe, not just in North America, not just in North areas between China and, and Russia. We have to do it on the desert edges, creating green belts in Africa, in South America, in areas in India, and of course in the Southern Hemisphere as well, where it suits, and enrich our forested areas. The forest areas in the, in the globe are shrinking down because of lumber need, but we can change it. We can plant again. And we show in a very small country as a kind of a laboratory, that's the way we, we, we feel that we are serving uh, uh, as a kind of a global laboratory in Yatir Forest. We are recommending to do it as much as quickest as we can. And as a fact, Karen Kaimetli Israel is part of the global effort of the United Nations, according to the IPCC agreements, is going to, to ex expand the forestation project in Israel and plant another, at least another 6 million trees in the, in the uh, next years that will come. We did a lot and we need to do a lot ahead. <clears throat> Alicia, um, you know, it was great to have you uh, guide us down uh, in the Negev a, a few, uh, a couple months ago. And to, you know, I've lived here 25 years, but I, I and I, I had seen it from a distance, but I'd never been up in the Yatir Forest. Very impressive. I think most uh, people know that uh, the Jewish National Fund, KKL, they plant trees here, but you, for decades, you've also been involved in building water reservoirs for the farmers, many other initiatives because you have uh, uh, oversight over so much of the land. And I don't think people really know how you're working on really uh, big projects that benefit everyone here, not just the whole nature aspect. And we saw that in the Yatir, in the Yatir forest that on all the ridge lines and all you were planting trees, but in some of the valleys and swales, you were allowing farmers to come in and plant uh, grape vineyards for, for wine, the Yatir winery that we visited. And there was a big reservoir over there that helped uh, get water to all these uh, wineries that you had helped develop a whole industry in the Negev, a wine industry, 
that really revived something that in the days of King David, this area was known for its wine. So can you talk about some of these big projects you're doing there and around the country to help, uh, you know, the whole, uh, the, the farming industry, the people in general? First of all, let's, let's uh, pay our, 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 you know, our due to, the, to our forefathers. And I, I meaning really David Ben-Gurion was, was a phenomena. We know him as a prime minister. This guy came as a young a teenager, I would say, on a boat, on one of the first boats of, of the Aliyah, uh, about a hundred years ago. And he had a vision. And one of the things that David Ben-Gurion is initiating, and we are talking before Israel was established, to create, and it was Kakal and the Jewish agency collaborating together and planning the new state before it was even there in front of the, of the United Nations. And they plan master plans. They, they, pl they prepare almost in any subject of our life, daily life, master plans, considering water issues, considering railways, considering where to put the new communities that we have to build for the newcomers that will come when Israel will be established. So we have those master plans in front of our eyes and we could, we could work with them. One of them was how should we prepare water issues in a desert land, in the desert country, in a desertification areas. And of course, the most impressive issue is the national carrier that took water from the Sea of Galilee, translocated it all the way down to the Negev in the 60s and cre creating for the first time the ability to live in desert areas. But, you know, during the 80s, we, we were experiencing, first of all, the first hints that something is going wrong globally. Precipitation went down and we went and population grew up. We had the, the uh, agreements with Jordan and the Palestinian Authority, so we have to, to share our water for the first time with other countries. And yes, we went to, into a very severe water crisis in the country. People are still, are still remembering as I am. My, my father was closing me the valve in the morning while, while I was doing the toothbrush. Don't waste water. We need the water for the farm. Why are you open the valve and not, and not closing it? This is the way we were grown. Water discipline was part of our entity as Israelis that grew here. You went up for a journey, you need to keep your water for a day. You, you can't waste it. And yes, we were losing a lot of our assets in water, water uh, uh, resources. How can you fix it? So we did several things. First of all, what's going on with the rain? If we are so clever catching the rain for the forest area, how come we don't do that in the rivers? So we start building reservoirs and we were able to build a kind of compounds that we can pump while we have flood in the river, most of the water to the side reservoirs. And we built huge compounds like that of three or four or five reservoirs, each of them can, can hold million on million of cubic of water, of gallons, and supply the water to the farmer when, it, when it's needed, you know, in early, early springtime and so forth. So we had the structure. How much did we did? Well, 250 reservoirs can stay in all over the state, which, which equals to a quarter of our early water demand. So it's like we created another aquifer. And this is the nickname of the reservoir's uh, 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 enterprise. It's the, it's the fourth aquifer of the country. Now, it's not enough. So what do you do? 
you learn how to recycle sewage. When I was studying and I was in the very first year of my PhD, which was never ended, I came to be a manager in Kakal. But one of the tasks that I got is what can we do with, with recycled sewage water? What about the salinity in this kind of resource? Is it possible at all to grow different kinds of, of cultivars of yields on this water? And we saw very quickly that it is possible. How much Israel is doing? We are leading. We are leading, the, Spain is, is in, uh, just in the second place after Israel, but we do a lot. Almost 90% of the yearly sewage water that we produce in our communities, in the industry, are being collected and recycled and serve the farmers in the country as, as another source of water for farming. Yet, it's not enough. So what do you do? You learn how to desalinate. And practically, our main water source for the, for the citizens, for house, uh, house uh, uh, holds, for industry, uh, everything, it comes not from the Sea of Galilee. We keep it as a kind of, a, of a emergency stock, and we need to, to keep the healthiness of the lake because this is our most beloved place in the country. And this is the most important water source that we have in the region as a whole, not just Israel enjoy that. Mm. So yes, we, we learn how to desalinate. Most of our drinking water are desalinated. Of course, all of it goes to sewage. 90% of, of this sewage is recycled, goes to the farmers and in the farmer fields, and greenhouses, they use methods like drip irrigation methods that can let them enjoy at least two times, if not three times, the same drip of water for their users in their areas as in the farming uh, cycle. So basically we use every drip of water at least five times. And again, uh, we experienced now a very nice two years of, of rainfall, blessed rainfall. The Sea of Galilee looks tremendously nice. And of course, we are happy, but we know that things are changing mm -hmm. globally. We see what's going on in the temperatures that are going to a very high peaks in summer times, and they drops to a very low peaks in winter time. Climate is changing and we proceeding that in, in next years ahead, we will not enjoy so much rain. So we cannot lean anymore on rains as, as a kind of a main water resource. Kakal is a lot in this kind of an effort of preparing ourselves. First of all, we became one of the professionals in reservoir building. Our teams, engineers, it's the, let's say, most known knowledge. Any structure like that is cost, cost a bundle. And we are doing also a lot in, in achieving the amounts of budgets that are needed to do that. A farmer cannot build a reservoir. Sometimes even the country cannot. And this is our role. Kakal is not just the doers. Kakal brings the resources and bring the money. We bring the resources. The most important issue is how the hell are we going to do that, that missions, which are, it's, it's really a lot of money. A reservoir for 1 million cubic meter can cost tens of, of millions of, of shekels. And we do that gladly for many, many years. And we feel that you know, our logo is, is composed from three colors, the green, which is most reasonably the forest areas, the blue, which is the water, and then the brown. And the brown was here from the very beginning of our establishment. The brown is the farmers. The brown is the new communities that we are seeking to build in the Negev. 
and in the Galilee. And as much as we can absorb either new families from the center of the country to the peripheries or newcomers that are coming now from, from a disaster in East of Europe. And this is our role to be sure that we can supply the needs for the Israeli nation for future times. Elisha, um, we were speaking about the Abrahamic Accords and is some of the research and the amazing findings that you just shared with us over this last half hour, is this also impacting the Arab world? You know, you spoke about this whole uh, belt that is uh, passing North Africa um, uh, all the way to Israel. Well, trees should be planted. Is there any projects that you feel it's being taking place right now in some of the neighboring countries? Are you exporting this technology to Arab countries? We just experienced a fabulous exhibition in Dubai. Israel, as most of the countries, was uh, representing in the Israeli uh, uh, pavilion. Uh, what is Israel? What has been done in this country? Kakal took part in the pavilion, as we do for several years already in several exhi exhibitions. And our teams, our professional teams were there in side events that are touching almost everything that you've heard from me, the, very, the, the most important people in the system, in Kakem Kakem Israel, participated in those lectures. People from Arab countries, not just from Dubai and the Emirates, but other countries that we are not in agreements yet, were sitting in the halls and hearing and, and learning what we did and what can be done. And it's my belief that we are heading there. It is not easy. It's not easy. When I did my internship in, in United States, I was studying forestry for a year and a half in Colorado. Some of my companions came from, from what we call enemy country. Back then, Iraq, Iran, I saw them in the campus daily. In, uh, in four eyes, I might say, they are there. How much time we need to pay? Since I did it, we lost 30 years. I was a very young student. I thought it's going to happen in my lifetime. I hope so. Uh, relating to the, to the Negev summit, I was in that day in Yatir with, with visitors, with friends. Two choppers flew above my head and I noticed it's, it's the choppers that bring the heavy guys down. They went to Zdebukir. And in that moment, I saw the picture of Anwar Sadat goes down from an airplane in Ben Gurion, hearing the Atikva and the Egyptian. It was so moving. I was a kid, I, I, I was 16 years old. I will never forget it. I think most of the Israelis remember this moment eagerly. We need to remember it's few years after, after 73. Every Israeli family lost a member of, of our community. I lost my nephew, my eldest nephew. I see him in my eyes every Memorial Day. And yes, we were expecting a peace to prevail. Hopefully it will happen, but you know, we are struggling. We are struggling. One, one of the things that I'm sure that will happen, that eventually, I will be very privileged to plant a tree in some Jordanian forest near Amman. <laughs> I, I know that uh, imitation is the most sincere form of uh, flattery that, that if you look in the Jordan Valley over the, on the Jordanian side, they, they build greenhouses like the Israelis do. So they, they're watching what you do, but we, we really hope there's a whole explosion of more cooperation on these areas between Israel and its Arab neighbors. 
But what about the, the Bedouin that make up half the population in, in the Negev? Israel has its plans for developing these areas. Uh, you know, just as Ben-Gurion said, there's a lot of good future development down there, but it's sort of running up against uh, a more traditional, older uh, uh, culture and lifestyle. And what's the nature of the problem and how can Israel solve this? First of all, I will be very, uh, let's, let's say, uh, unpolitically correct, saying that it's, it's not directly connected to Karen Kamele, Israel, and JNF. Yeah. Uh, as a fact, as a manager of those uh, forestation crews in the Negev, I was privileged to be a manager of many, 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 some of them I love, mm -hmm. Bedouins that are loyal to the Israeli country. Some of them are serving the army. And if we look at, on Ben-Gurion uh, generation, he saw them as partners. They, they were and they still are one of the loyal, loyal publics in Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, the Israeli uh, society is, is composed from different kinds of colors of minorities. As we know, the Jews that are part of our, you know, they, they did it basically from 48, deciding that Israel is their homeland. That's it. And they serve, and some of the Druze officers are one of the, you know, they go all the way up, up as, as, as high as they can in the ranks in, in IDF and in the Israeli society. Also, some Bedouins do the same, but there is, there is, there is an issue that creates conflicts. And this conflict should be resolved. There were a lot of attempts from the uh, side of the government to offer them any kind of, of settlements of taking those nomads and settle them in a proper way of living. If you look around when you when you tour around those those villages where that they don't have a normal way of water supply, electricity. Even roads, schools, kids are go coming up from the, their tents and going miles on miles on miles by foot, winter and summer to the closest uh, uh, schoolyard. It's irreasonable. It's not a way we would like our citizen to live in modern times. And I'm talking now from my, my personal view, not not exactly as a Karen Kremet Israel person, but as one as did his, his 25 years serving his country and Kakal Karen Kremet in the Negev area. Some of those people are very, very important for me. I knew their elders. I think it should be solved. What are the risks? What are the risks? A lot of risks. First of all, crimes. When anyone is, is living in such of, of a gaps between poverty to uh, societies that are close by, that lives in a very high way of lifestyle, create a conflict between the Bedouins and Israelis and between some other communities as well. Something that should be dissolved. And, and of course, the, the amount of acreages of land, of space that is being uh, improperly developed create huge, huge risk for next generation of any of us in the country and especially in the desert area. Some of those areas should be left clear, first of all, for the nature. But yes, for, for, for future generation ahead, we can't be so, you know, arrogant about how we take our resources, how we treat our resources. And unfortunately, this is, this is some of the things that we are, we are uh, uh, seeing in our own eyes in the areas surrounding the city of Beersheba, all the way to Arad, 
It's a huge territory that is unmanaged. One of the reasons to a collapse in empires in the Middle East, historically, was unmanaging. After the Byzants went out of these areas, and throughout the Byzantine period, this land, even the northern areas of the Negev, was one of the richest places. They exported many products to Europe, to Rome, from a desert country. A very famous wine was sent from Ashkelon area, and we find the wineries these days, all the way to Rome, to, to, the, to the empire. From where? From a desert area. They could do it because they knew how to manage the areas. When the Muslims came, things changed and degradation of the, of the local ecological system was all the way until the early stage of, of what we call mod, modern period. We changed it. We brought back the fertility of the land. It is possible. Any country around can do the same if things will be managed. You can't be here, you can't survive in this area if you are not strong enough by managing your resources and also the way that people live in this, in this area. So if there is some message that I can transformed through you, there isn't next, uh, uh, you know, there, there is a next chance in this, in this uh, uh, desert. Desert rules are there. Mm. They are part of the culture of the people that lives in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East. We need to follow the desert rules and we, we need to be brave enough in order to do that. We have a lot of things to contribute to the communities that we are living with. I think, this are, <laughs> I think th this were very powerful and very um, insightful closing remarks. We already are talking more than one hour to each other. And I think everybody could see that talking to Elisha, that's what we experienced when David and I were traveling with him through Israel. It, uh, he entertained us with so much information for hours. Now I want to make one last announcement before we close this uh, webinar. I know there are people now out there, they said this is amazing. Uh, we never thought about that in Israel. Uh, we found this tree planting, maybe this is something from the early generations of Zionism. It's not so important anymore today. You learn today, this is super important for the time in which we are living. And you can be part of this miracle to turning the desert into a garden Eden. And you can do so at the Feast of Tabernacles in 2022. We have a strategic partnership with KKL for the Feast of Tabernacles. We are going to take the entire feast participants to the Negev. And we want to make sure that everybody who stays with us for the feast will leave back something in Israel when you are leaving back to your country that there will be a, pleat, a tree planted in your name in Israel and we want to take you to this uh, southern area where the Yatil forest is where the, the neighboring can, uh, area or to the Gaza Strip is so you will hear and see more about the miracles that KKL is uh, accomplishing today. Um, Elisha, thank you so much for this super interesting uh, webinar. Uh, David, do you have any closing remarks for us today? No, I, I really uh, appreciate every moment we we get with uh, Elisha. He was quite Im impressive. He, he spent 25 years in the Negev uh, helping to manage the development of it and then went and got uh, uh, to tour guide school and became a tour guide, but he's like their senior. Uh, he's the tour guide of tour guides in Israel. One of these guys that you get on a bus with him and you just get uh, uh, all this fascinating information. He was talking to us, you're gonna remember about how Prime Minister Sharon dealt with uh, all the Bedouin chieftains in the, in the Negev and they listened to him and he knew how to talk to him and all. And uh, it's just fascinating, the history and, and the, the science, the forestry the nature that you get out of Elisha. And we're so glad we were able to introduce him to our folks today.
Yeah, I would like I to can't... say on behalf of Pakal, to the Christian Embassy in Jerusalem for giving us the opportunity to participate in Envision, and of course for this webinar. Thanks a lot, my friends. And I can't resist to share one picture. This was uh, just a few weeks ago with Elisha when he was showing us the desert. And you do see this doesn't definitely look like desert. It's very similar to the image that you have on your wall back there. And uh, this is uh, the Borg of Kakal making uh, Israel one of the most beautiful countries in the world. So we want to encourage you to join us at the Feast of Tabernacles. The theme is the land of promise. You heard today some of the miracles that are taking place here. And we look forward to see you with Elisha. You will meet him at the Feast of Tabernacles uh, later on in October this year. Thanks so much. Thanks, David. And thanks, Elisha. And thanks, everybody who was joining us today. Um, I believe this was a, a very enlightening and educational webinar today. To Daraba. Daraba. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content.